Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing Aerial Investment CEO John Rogers to talk the markets and the black-white wealth gap. You know, I've always been interested in learning a lot now because I wasn't an econ major. I probably should have been, but learning a lot now about the markets, the way they work, and how to build wealth. And John Rogers is definitely an expert at that. But before we get to him, I wanted to talk about SB202. It's the voter suppression bill that was recently signed by Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Now, I'm sure you've heard about it, but in case you haven't, here's what the bill does. Counties have to have advanced voting on Saturdays, and they have the option to do it on Sundays. Current law only mandates one Saturday of early voting. That's the only good thing in the bill. The bill shortens the period between elections and runoffs from nine weeks to four weeks, It limits the number of drop boxes allocated per county, hurting the large Democratic counties like Fulton and DeKalb. You can't provide water or food within 25 feet of any voter standing in line. There's a lot in there that I don't like, but I want to draw your attention to the two provisions that are the most problematic. Any Georgia citizen, including crazy racist Republicans, can file an unlimited number of challenges to a voter's eligibility. That's one. And two, The state election board, a majority Republican body controlled by the Republican legislative majority, can unilaterally take over county election boards that run elections and disqualify completed ballots. So that means Republicans in Georgia can take over the election boards in heavily Democratic counties like Fulton, DeKalb, Gwinnett, and Cobb and essentially count the votes and disqualify them. If left intact, these two things alone threaten the Senate majority in 2022, So while there's a workaround for giving folks water in line, there's no workaround for these two provisions. A lot of the reporting on this has failed to draw this particular angle out. And if this is duplicated across the country in Texas, Florida and elsewhere where Republicans control the statehouse and the governor's mansion, you can see how bad this could get. So here's a clip from Raphael Warnock on this bill. SB 202 will allow for a hostile takeover of local boards of elections if the Georgia legislature, filled with politicians, doesn't like the outcome of an election, it's anti-democratic, it's un-American. They're trying to make it harder for people to vote rather than making it easier uh, for people to vote. We saw how important vote by mail is. When you think about working families, um, they need opportunities to be able to exercise their franchise. And it became particularly important in the middle of this pandemic, which we're not out of yet. And besides, the people of Georgia have been voting like this for years. Now, all of a sudden, it's a problem. I think they they don't like the outcome. And so rather than change their message, they're trying to change the rules. Notice what he pointed out here. And it wasn't water in lines. I understand the outrage, but we need a strategy a legal one for striking this bill and a political one for finishing the job of flipping the Georgia state legislature and electing Stacey Abrams in 2022 and reelecting Raphael Warnock. And that's that on that. Now, I hope y'all got y'all pens and pads and listen to somebody brilliant who knows about marketing, the market and investing. My good friend, John Rogers. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today is special for me because I have somebody on the show I've admired for a long period of time. And as I've gotten older and tried to learn more about finances and economics and in my political career, I've always tried to see what John Rogers was doing. How are you doing today, my brother? I hope all is well. Doing well. Glad to be here at the office. What part of the world are you in? You in Chicago today? Yeah, I'm in Chicago, just uh, at our headquarters at the Aon Center. Definitely. You know... uh, We start each episode the same way. And the reason we do it is because a lot of times individuals only see our guests when they reach the height of their career. They never see uh, the work that they do to get there. So walk us through the arc of your career. Take us from your first job out of Princeton to eventually starting Aerial Investments. Thank you. I went to work at a firm called William Blair and Company. It was a regional investment banking shop here in Chicago. The managing partner at the time was a man named Ned Janata, who was a former Princeton football player. And I got introduced to Ned, and um, I became the first African-American to work there in a professional uh, position at William Blair. And it was a great place to train. I started out as a stockbroker, uh, learned about how to work with individual investors and help them, you know, guide them on their investment decisions. But because it was a regional brokerage firm, I learned all about investment management, mutual funds, investment banking, private equity, options trading, you know, everything mm. you could think of. And I pretty quickly realized I was in the wrong place, focused on being a broker where you got paid a commission for every transaction versus if you were in investment management, you got paid a fee to manage someone else's portfolio. And I liked that. It seemed like your interests were aligned with your customer's interests. So after two and a half years of William Blair, I uh, decided to leave and start Aerial Investments. Uh, I was 24, and I think the idea was that I had developed this investment strategy that I believed in deeply, of small and mid-sized undervalued securities, and with sort of a Warren Buffett approach to these small and mid-sized companies. Mm. And then the other part of it was there had never been an African-American-owned money management or mutual fund company in the country's history. And being here in Chicago with these role models like John Johnson with Ebony and Jet, and George Johnson with Afrosheen and Ultrasheen, I thought maybe, you know, we could make a little bit of history by being the first in our industry. And so that's where we got started. You know, and it's been uh, 38 years later, we're still here. So for, for people who've never heard of Ariel, what is Ariel and why did you decide to start your own firm so early in your career at 24 years old, what made you take that leap of faith? And how did you, how did you get your first client? How did you raise your first dollar? Well, I, I would say that I was, I was confident in uh, my ability to start Ariel because you know, my father had bought stocks for me every birthday and every Christmas after I was 12 years old. 
And he had introduced me to his stockbroker, a guy named Stacy Adams, who was the first African-American stockbroker here in Chicago. And he became my role model and mentor. And I spent a lot of time with Stacy. had a broker across the street from campus at Princeton when I was there. And so I had this belief that I, I could do this, that I could uh, pick stocks and make money for customers. And my early stocks that I picked when I was at William Blair worked out really well. And mm-hmm. I did my own original research. And so this idea of developing the strategy of small and mid-sized undervalued securities, um, we were one of the few firms in the country at the time who were focused in that part of the marketplace. So our product was really unique and unusual for the time. And as I mentioned earlier, the idea of being the first African-American firm was really exciting for me. But I think the other thing was that really helped me get going was that I was able to get friends and family to help me raise about $250,000 of seed money. Mm. And I often joke that I went to my father and he gave me, he said he gave me everything he could afford to lose. And my mom gave me basically all of her liquid life savings and then just went to friends and family. You know, um, Valerie Jarrett's parents were one of my early uh, investors in the company, you know, high school buddies, former clients of mine from my stock brokerage days. And uh, so that's how we got started with, with that seed capital. I got a friend from high school to be my deputy. And our first institutional client was Howard University, um, okay. which is a, they gave us $100,000 to manage out of their endowment. And we were in business for six months. And that was a thrill to get that first institutional customer. Because what we do is we do, we're basically in two businesses. One, we manage portions of endowments, uh, pension plans corporate pension plans, public pension plans. And the second part of our business, and after we'd been in business for three years, we started a mutual fund company. Uh, and so Aerial Fund is our flagship fund that started in 1986. So it's almost 30, it's over 35 years old now. And uh, it's really been a terrific thing to have mutual funds available for individual investors. We compete with Fidelity and Vanguard and yeah. T. Rowe Price and all the other fund companies. And the other thing I tell people all the time is, you know, our funds are available in the Illinois 529 program for kids. Uh, we can be added to any 401k plan in the country if someone wants a diverse option with good performance and, you know, an ESG lens. And then uh, finally, we, we want people to go to their financial advisor and say, why are none of the funds you're showing me run by an African-American firm? So mm. that's our kind of two businesses, you know, money management for institutions, mutual funds for individual investors. And uh, yeah, really proud of the 38-year track record. So let, let's talk a little bit about the current scene that we find ourselves in, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. The recent dust-up around Robinhood and GameStop dominated the news a few weeks ago. What was your initial take on the GameStop controversy? And do you view apps like Robinhood that help democratize access to the stock market as a net positive, particularly for Black investors? Well, I think on the first part of the question, I think that... Uh, What's happened with GameStop and some of these companies that have gone just absolutely crazy? It's like nothing I've ever seen before in 38 years, nothing that I've ever read about to be able to see the kind of you know stock moves in a few days or a few weeks. Absolutely crazy. And whenever this happens throughout history, when there's been anything remotely like it, it always ends very badly. Whether it's the Dutch Dutch tulip bulbs or you know what happened, of course, in the Roaring Twenties and the stock market crashed in 1929. What we saw happen in, uh, when the internet bubble burst, this is going to be really rough on a lot of people who are chasing and trying to play this game and thinking they can out, 
outmaneuver and outtrade the professionals. Uh, I learned that when I was a, a younger person and thought I could make get rich quick in the options market and trading penny stocks. It learned it just did not work. So I worry for folks that I think this will end again, end very badly. On the other hand, the this idea that you can get started with small amounts of money is terrific. And I know Charles Schwab has also done a great job of being making it easy for investors to start with small amounts, buy slices of stocks, get into the market, get exposed. I think it's important to get exposed to real stocks with real money. You know, that's what my dad did for me. And so I think this is really good. And it's really great for African-Americans who, as we know, we don't have the wealth in this country that we deserve. We know the wealth gap is so large. So the opportunity for us to get into the market mm-hmm. with small amounts of money, get our feet wet, get comfortable, I think is really, really great. And then with digital, uh, you know, now you can, uh, you don't have to go into a brokerage office. You know, you don't have to go in, you know, you can just do this online. And, that, and I think that also makes it easier for our community where maybe we don't have the confidence yet because of the, uh, again, the lack of wealth opportunities we've had in this country. We don't have experience with brokerage and money management firms and the like. So being able to do this online, I think, is very good for the African-American community. We're also seeing a lot of people investing in cryptocurrencies and other di- digital currencies. For the record, I do not. Uh, everybody I talk to who has good sense and, and have advised me, shout out to Liad, my good friend Liad, who gives me money advice all the time. Look, I don't, I don't dabble in Bitcoin and everything else, but I know that it's popular. How does a more traditional investor like you view... I'm not calling you old, but I'm just saying a traditional <laughs> investor view these kinds of market innovations and how do things like cryptocurrency stack up against asset classes compared to a more traditional investment like stocks? Well, I think the key thing, you know, I, I think Warren Buffett is the greatest investor of all time. And he and his partner, Charlie Munger, have been very, very vocal that cryptocurrencies really don't have any value. You know, they're like gold. You know, Warren often talks about you can sit and you can admire gold. Uh, you can polish it, but it doesn't do anything. It's not like if you own an orange tree and it produces oranges or you, you know, have, have an oil field that has oil in it. These things don't have any utility. They don't do anything for our economy or our society. Wouldn't people say the same thing about art, though, just to push back on you a little bit? I think, uh, well, I think art people would say... You know, it's hard to it's hard to value art. You know, and my daughter loves the art world, and she's been teaching me all about it. But I think that uh, there's an aesthetic to art. There's something you know beautiful about you know these extraordinary paintings and pictures and things that people have done. So that's what, again, what's Warren's point is like gold or cryptocurrency. There's nothing to look at. There's nothing to enjoy. There's nothing to appreciate. It's just it has no utility. I think there's utility in the art world. So. Um, so I think this will end also very, very badly for people. I know a lot of people are getting sucked into it. A lot of very professional people are being sucked into it. But we have a currency here in the United States. We don't need another one that's more expensive and not very efficient to use. And with no fundamentals that you can look at. I mean, there's nothing you can tie it to. So how about this? Contrast this COVID-driven economic downturn with the Great Recession we saw in the late 2000s. And when do you see, when do you think we'll see economic activity resume to its pre-COVID Q1 2020 levels? Well, I comparing to 08 and 09, this was just so swift and vicious, this downturn. It was uh, just shockingly, you know, just short. I mean, it was shockingly short how quickly it came, how Stocks just totally collapsed and it was a real panic going on. I think we lost over 40% of our assets in a matter of weeks. It was just absolutely uh, 
insane. So 08 and 09, at least it took a year and a half or so for you to lose 40% of your assets, (laughs) a little more time. So, but when it comes to the economy, you know, the economy's roaring back. You can feel there's a huge amount of pent up demand. I see from, you know, the boards that I'm on and then the research that I do on the companies that we invest in, confidence is building. Um, People are planning for the future. Companies are starting to buy back stock, raise dividends because their confidence that cash flow is going to be there and the customers are going to be there as we move through 2021. So I'm quite optimistic on the outlook for our economy, and it won't be long until we get back to those highs that we had uh, before COVID. Uh, I think as we get toward the end of this year, it'll be surprisingly how, how good things are going to look. You know, every year talking about those those surveys and research, Ariel conducts its own annual Black Investor Survey. And I'm particularly interested in one of your findings regarding younger Black investors. And that's that for the first time in the survey's 20-year history, there is just as much stock market participation in Blacks under 40 as there is whites under 40 at 63%, with three times as many Black investors reporting that 2020 was the first time that they participated in the stock market. What's driving the higher participation rates of young Black investors? And how do we ensure that our people aren't just participating, but the performance of their investments is on par with white investors? That was a heavy question, I know, but I, yeah. I, you, had me up, you had me up reading your survey, so I had to ask. Thank you. No, I, I, uh, this is Melody Hobson's, uh, and, and you know, it's been her brainchild to have this survey over the years, and it's really become an important thing for us. And it's, uh, it's been great to have Charles Schwab as a partner. I would say that the, um, the idea of us getting more involved goes back to what we touched on earlier. I do think that, uh, again, I mentioned Places like Charles Schwab have made it so easy for African-Americans and all Americans to get started in the stock market with relatively modest amounts of money. You can do it online. It makes it just so simple and easy, and you can trust it. You don't have to worry about having to go and go into some large bank that is you know, uncomfortable or some large brokerage firm where maybe someone's going to make you feel like you don't have enough to invest. And as many of these brokerage firms have gotten way high limits now of what they really want to see from mm-hmm. individual investors. So... I think this democratization of investing is a really big deal and is pulling the African-American community inside the markets. I do find still, though, when we get involved, you know, younger people are going to be making the same mistakes as white Americans are, you know, chasing the hot stocks, trying to get rich quick. And that's worrisome. And uh, sometimes because of the way things work, we always are the last in on the fad. You know, we were late into the real estate bubble before it burst. We were late into the internet bubble before it mm-hmm. burst. And so I think this is going to be the third time, you know, these last 25 years where African-Americans are going to get pulled in right when the rug's about to be pulled out from under them. And so I really worry about that. And it all comes back to this wealth gap and the fact that the wealth gap is getting larger and larger in this country. And because of the historic way that we came to this country, the racism we face, the Jim Crow laws that we face, the restrictive covenants that we face, we didn't have the opportunity to get equal wealth. And so we didn't get familiar with the markets. We didn't have grandpa or uncle so-and-so coming to dinner and telling us about the stock market and teaching us about investing because we didn't have multi-generational wealth to invest money. And so it's really a real problem. You know, you know Nicole Hannah-Jones's piece in the New York Times mm-hmm. Magazine last year was just so such extraordinary journalism. We're showing how the impact of slavery all the way forward, how it impacted our ability to create wealth. 
And I just think sometimes we don't, people always want to say that we spend too much. That's not our issue. Our issue is the way that we came to this country, the way that we were treated when we got here. Let me ask, let me piggyback on that because one of the other things that I know you're passionate about, we're going to, I want to unpack this economic justice argument, but in your survey as well, and tying it to the survey that I hope everybody goes to read, you know, there's a well-documented retirement crisis for black Americans as we tend to have far less saved for retirement. Uh, and even then your survey finds that even when you hold income constant, black investors put less in their 401ks than white counterparts. How do we reverse some of these trends that contribute to the looming retirement crisis for so many black Americans? Well, think a couple of things, you know, one, the boards that I'm on, I always talk to the CFOs of those companies and say, have you studied your employee base and realize that your minority employees are going to be not as invested in the 401k as your white employees at the same job description, same income level, et cetera. And every single time they've never thought about it. So I think <laughs> what we did have to do, you know, is get corporate America to do the research and then do it. We've done it at McDonald's and I know the New York Times and Nike are looking at it now, you know, find ways to work with the employee groups to make sure that we are creating unique outreach to our minority communities to make sure that folks are comfortable with the markets and, you know, it's, a lot of it is cultural, you know, and uh, we have to just make extra efforts. And when you make extra efforts, you're going to get better participation. But the second thing you have to make sure of is that you're also, we have to realize we're not going to be as comfortable investing as aggressively as white Americans often. We're going to be a more conservative, cautious investing. And so our money I mean, is not trust. Be- I mean, this is a new system for us. And many times the, the, right. the, you're asking us to invest in these companies who haven't treated us out of an equal spoon forever and invest in these banks we don't have relationships with. Exactly. And we're going to be you know, uncomfortable. And so it's a real problem. We're going to be more conservative. And then the other one coming back to the wealth of cap, we keep coming back to it, but it's so profound when it comes to retirement. As we know, we have extended family we have to take care of. You know, you go through a horrible crisis like we went through last year with COVID. People are having to take money out of their 401k plans through a hardship withdrawal or borrow money from their 401k plans to help their extended family help their niece or nephew, you know, get through school and pay the tuition or help with their, their parents' uh, mortgage or whatever it happens to be, extended family issues. We have more of that in our community. Mm-hmm. And so it's profoundly impactful when it comes to retirement income. So my question to you is this, and you, you I was, it was funny to me because I was talking to David Axelrod about you and how you used to play basketball over at the <laughs> University of Chicago with Axe and Arnie Duncan, and uh, I, he was mentioning all the names and how close everybody was in this in this orbit. And another tall, skinny guy with a funny name uh, with ears <laughs> a lot like mine named, named Barack Obama. But you were one of the, the, the people who's been toiling in the vineyard, ringing the alarm about income inequality. What should Washington be doing to provide a more stable floor for retirement for Black Americans but also just remedying this fundamental crisis we have because we know that we are about, at last check, 226 years behind our white counterparts when it comes to assuming or accumulating wealth in this country. So what are some of the policy points you would like to make? Yeah, I think a couple things, and this comes from, again, like you said, I've been around for a while. And when I was getting home from college, it was a period where we had Harold Washington got elected as mayor. Um, I got to learn and read about Maynard Jackson, who later became a very close friend. 
And those progressive dynamic mayors understood. And you can't forget about Marion Barry. We don't let anybody forget about Marion right. Barry on this That's show. That's true, right? <laughs> and Mary, I didn't know Marion, but I, I know he fought. I, you know, I knew Harold and Maynard, but I didn't know Marion, but I knew he fought though for black businesses. He understood that you're going to have right. a strong urban community when you have vital, strong black businesses there that are going to employ black people, create philanthropy and political empowerment for their own communities. And you know, we saw that with George Johnson again, Afro Sheen and Ultra Sheen. We saw how much he started Independence Bank and became the largest black bank in the country. You know, he prepaid three years of advertising in essence just to keep them in business early on. Hmm. He used, he was Burrell Advertising's largest customers. They were getting going to become the largest black advertising agency. But he also was responsible for 70 tables at the Urban League dinner every year. And when Dr. King here came, when Dr. King came to Chicago desperate to make payroll, he made sure the Independence Bank gave him loans and he pulled together his African-American entrepreneurial friends to support Dr. King at a critical moment of the civil rights movement. So those mayors understood it was so important to have strong black businesses. And too often, too many of our mayors have gotten away from that. And too many of our elected officials have gotten away from that. Now, we have some heroes in Washington. Your question about Washington, you know, Joyce Beatty, who was the chair, new chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Cheney State graduate. She's fantastic. Uh, and of course, Maxine Waters is still a fierce fighter for, for black businesses. What we need to do specifically is get all of the major contractors that do business with the federal government to be transparent with how they spend their money so that we can then start to put pressure on them like we've done to have more minority employees and have more, more minority board members. They need to understand they should be doing business with black companies in everything we do. Mm hmm. You know, from black law firms to accounting firms to investment firms to uh, technology firms. And if we start to hold those giant contractors accountable, that's going to create real wealth for our community. And it's just going back to what Ma Marion and Harold and, and Maynard did, you know, holding the local anchor institutions accountable to do business with black people. That, that is just essential that we can get that done from our federal government. The second thing the federal government can do is they're giving a lot of money now to hospitals and universities and bailing them out during this COVID crisis. Those anchor institutions often don't do any business with black companies. They basically, mm. you know, they get the money for the local museum, local university, and spend it all with the white men who are on the board of trustees and their friends. We have to be included in that. Now, there are places here in Chicago that are doing this well. University of Chicago is a model. They're working with 90, over 95 minority-owned professional services firms. You know, McDonald's has a great history. Exelon has a great history. There's some really good institutions here in town, but those are too few and too few and far between. So just think about it. If, you, if your congressman is helping to sign off on legislation that gets dollars to hospitals and universities and museums, they should be doing business with our community mm -hmm. in everything we do. And the final thing is they do that. They need to get rid of the term supplier diversity and replace it with what the University of Chicago calls business diversity. Because what's happened, whenever you finally get a progressive institution that do business with Black people, they only focus on the supply chain, construction, yeah. catering, janitorial services, which are important businesses, vitally important businesses. But you know, our economy has moved to a professional services, financial services, and technology-based economy. The wealthiest people in America now are the hedge fund guys, the private equity guys, the Silicon Valley guys. So I say it's a modern-day Jim Crow if the black and brown people do the catering and the construction and the white guys do the investment banking and the technology, it's just not fair. It's just not right. And we let it happen. We've just gone down this path 
of supplier diversity and not challenging it to, as the economy has evolved. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I want to switch gears real quick here and talk about corporate diversity. I know we've been talking about it a lot, and I wanted to start in your wheelhouse around diversity in the asset management industry. Why is it so important that we be intentional about engaging minority-owned asset managers to manage institutional dollars like public employment, pensions, and college endowments, not just the what is it called? Black. I, I get BlackRock and Blackstone confused, but <laughs> yes, not, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I believe it's BlackRock, not just BlackRock that, you know, manages the, the large federal pension. But how do we make sure that more people like yourself get involved in this? And why is that important? Well, I think first and foremost, I mean, it's, it's uh, well, a couple of several reasons. One, there's a lot of talented African-American money managers out there that will add value and outperform and do great if they get a chance to fully participate in this part of our economy. Why have we not to this point? Why? Tell me this. I mean, we've had, of course, I call him Uncle Jesse. We've had all of these people pushing these buttons, but why? And we've even had an amazing president in Barack Obama, but why have we not gotten to this point where we're able to crack this kind of economic engine that has not been accessible to black folk for a long time? I think a lot of it is because of the way that we, again, came to this country. We haven't been full participants in the financial services industry. So we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. When I tell my friends like Reverend Sharp and Reverend Jackson and uh, others that, you know, the top hedge fund guy in the, in, in the country after the financial crisis, John Paulson made $5 billion in one year. They have no idea what we're missing out on. When I talk to, you know, student groups and talk oh, to oh, parents oh, oh, groups. Back up, back up, back up, back up, back up. You just dropped a number that I didn't quite. I'm still I still owe ninety three thousand dollars in student loans. You trying to tell me somebody I should have been a business major should have gone to Wharton. You trying to tell me somebody made five billion dollars in a, in one year managing pension yeah, funds? Yeah, John Paulson. Um, his company's called Paulson and Company. There was a book written about the greatest trade ever made, and mm-hmm. literally he bet against the uh, when the financial crisis was happening in 08 and 09, he put on trades that he benefited as the housing market collapsed. And he had some sophisticated trading techniques that worked beautifully that no one else hardly saw coming, maybe a handful of other people. So he made, it's, it's, it's common knowledge, he made $5 billion in one year. On the housing um, crisis or during the housing crisis? Is it, fair to, like, is it fair to say on the housing crisis because of the housing crisis or just during? Both. You're yeah. exactly right. If we were getting yeah. kicked out of our homes in black communities, he was making $5 billion that year. 
it's a it's an extraordinary story. But you know, the wealthiest guy in Illinois right now is a very generous guy, Ken Griffin. He's worth over ten billion dollars. I thought he the Pritzkers makes, were, the Pritzkers are the wealthiest guys. In- no, if you look at the list uh, the, individually, Ken Griffin's the wealthiest. Our science industry museum was just named after him. He is uh, you know very su- su- supportive of Harvard University of Chicago, but he makes a billion and a half to two billion dollars a year regularly. He's Citadel, his company is extraordinarily successful. Ah. So, so part of your answer to your question, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we're missing out of, missing out on because we weren't exposed to this part of the economy in this part of the world, except for a handful of people. In the hedge fund industry, there's only, as far as I know, only less than five black-owned companies of any scale at all. Less than five in the whole United States. So we've missed out on this entire part of this. So what has happened then is when we get into elected office, and are even our most progressive folks just are not known to ask and insist that the assets of these pension funds and endowments and 401ks be managed by people of color. And um, that's one of the great things about what Joyce Beatty is doing and what Maxine Waters is doing. They're holding large banks accountable for the first time and large insurance companies to say, you guys need to do business with black people with your own pension funds and your own 401k plan. And guess what? There should be black firms on your on your uh, financial advisory uh, network, so that when a wealthy family comes to your bank and wants to get their money managed, you're going to recommend some African American mm-hmm. firms as well as all the white firms. Those questions have never been asked until these two dynamic women got into these leadership roles and have fought for this. And so it's just so critical. And the real, why it matters? A couple things. You know, not only again it brings talent. And, 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 and some of us as firms like ours, we become hopefully role models for next generation talent. You know, Melody Hobson got her start at Ariel, still, you know, is my co-CEO. And the top two African-Americans at Northern Trust Bank, the first two ever to be on the management committee, started their careers at Ariel. If we didn't exist, the pipeline of talent for this industry would be much less. But we've been hopefully role models that, that people can see people that look like them doing this. They start to think about this as a career. The other thing we do is that we invest in publicly traded companies. We can point to now over 50 times where we've been able to convince a company to have their first African-American board member, uh, first minority mm-hmm. board member. So whether it's Sotheby's with Don Stewart, who used to be the, you know, the president of Spelman, to uh, Marty Nesbitt at Jones Lang LaSalle. I have, we have 50 situations like that where we've been able to get this done and, of course, push the companies we invest in to uh, – uh, have minority management teams and to do business with minority companies and remind them how important it is for them to live the values they say they care about. So for us being a major shareholder of these small and mid-sized companies we invest in, we have impact on them, and which is a positive impact for our community. And then finally, of course, we try to do things from a philanthropic standpoint that matter. We started a small public school to teach kids about investing called the Ariel Community Academy. It's 25 oh, wow. years old. We have a conference for African-Americans that are on corporate boards that's 18, 19 years old now. That's uh, been a wonderful opportunity for hundreds of black directors to come together every year and learn how to fight for economic justice once they're in the boardroom. We just started a program with the University of Chicago four years ago for minority students to get paid internships to work in the investment offices of major endowments. So when a firm like ours succeeds, we're hopefully trying to pay it forward and create more opportunities for African-Americans to be able to be successful in the financial services industry. And finally, of course, we, we performed really, really well. So people, after they've hired us, you know, we're really proud of our performance over the 38 years, the last one year, five years, 10 years, 
head of our benchmarks and um, actually been number one in our category since March of 2009. So it's been good to be able to see that our contrarian investment approach has actually worked and outperformed the big guys in many, many cases. So not only are you getting not some opportunities, but you're also overperforming. I remind folk often that, you know, talking about your, you, you keep going back to something that's so important when you talk about the, the, the way that we were brought to this country and the lack of access we had. I'm always reminded that we've never had an African-American actually sign uh, currency in this country. We've never had a black secretary of the treasury. And there were a lot of us who were pushing for Ken Chenault um, during the Obama years. I thought he would have been fabulous. Mm. Uh, but hopefully we can get to that point soon, maybe in the next go round. My last question to you before I let you go, because you're managing other people's money. They don't want you on podcast. They want you out there doing <laughs> the diligence. Um, you're also on the boards of a few large, you talked about this, publicly traded companies. While board diversity is obviously important, I don't. Uh, we talked about that. I want to ask a more specific question, and that's how do we make sure the right black people get on these boards? I ask because it's easy to find a black face to put on a board, but you're often there for a reason, and that's to only advise the company on its core business, but also helping them understand how diversity, equity, and inclusion can actually help drive the business. How do we get the right black and brown folks on these boards and not just black and brown faces? A couple things there. One is I've been talking a lot about this. Um, and actually, I did a, uh, a article with Stephanie Creary, who's an African-American female professor at Wharton Business School. She's fantastic. And what we talked about there, we celebrated Leon Sullivan, who had been the you know, board member of General Motors. And he created the Sullivan Principles to sort of help teach General Motors and other companies how to work in South Africa at the time when the apartheid was there. And there was a real push to, you know, start to move out of South Africa. Well, Leon Sullivan was so progressive. He left such a legacy there of fighting for justice for South Africa through his board seats in General Motors. So we see him as kind of a role model. And so one of the things we have to do is celebrate the role models who have made a difference in the boardroom. And that's, that's one thing. The second thing we need to do, and what we've done at our Black Directors Conference, and we started with Charles Tribbett from Russell Reynolds, you know, again, 18 and 19 years ago, is bring speakers to our conference every year who remind them of the responsibility that they have to speak up and, and, and fight for economic justice. So over the years, you wouldn't be surprised. We've had Harry Belafonte come, Congressman mm-hmm. Clyburn come, Barack Obama come, Eric Holder come, uh, Reverend Jackson, Reverend Sharpton, and of course, the late Congressman John Lewis. All those guys come on Friday nights and we have them in what we call the conscience of the conference to remind all those, those of us that are privileged to be in the boardroom that it's up to us. If we don't speak out for each other in our community, who is? Nothing will change. And you're giving the status quo the freedom to stay the same if you sit idly by in those boardrooms. So we need to be inspired by our civil rights leaders and, and other leaders who've made a difference on these issues to fight for it. And then finally, I think we have to do, it's got to get the executive recruiting firms who do the searches for these companies to have that question asked. When they're going out and finding a black person for the boardroom, to make sure that person has a history of fighting for civil rights and being included in the various organizations that we all know so much about and show some history that they care about our issues. That's not a question that governance committees ask. It's not a question that executive recruiters ask. So now I've been on a mission to say those questions have to be addressed. It's kind of insane when you think about it, Mm -hmm. you know, all the sacrifices that have gone on to open up these doors for us to put people in these board seats that are not going to fight for economic justice. It makes no sense. 
I mean, I, I sit on the board of a, the only publicly traded CBD company in the country. It's called YCBD. And, uh, you know, I try to take that onus on as well as some privately held companies as well. But I, I, I take that onus on with me all the time. Let's say one quick thing there. What we've asked the director to do is agree on three, three P's. One is philanthropy to make sure your board, your companies are giving money to black organizations. Number two, people measure the people in the executive suites. And then third, purchasing, keep track of the spending by category. So whatever board you're on, if they're going to go out and do a transaction, buy another company, are they going to be black investment bankers in the room? Are they going to be mm-hmm. black lawyers in the room? If they've got a 401k plan, is one of the investment options a black option? Asking all those questions regularly and measuring the purchasing by category, and I said earlier, get rid of that term supplier diversity and let us be included in all aspects of the economy and use the term business diversity. Well, listen, this has been one of the more fruitful shows that I've been a part of and learned so much. I want to thank you for your time, John Rogers at Aerial Investments. And uh, I hope to have you on again when the market turns around near the end of the year, beginning of next year, we'll have you on to tell us about the outlook going forward. So thank you for your time today. And shout out to uh, your entire staff, your chief of staff, your, your comms people, everybody who helped put this together. You got a great team going over there. Well, thank you. This has really been fun. I really enjoyed this. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. Man, that episode was so dope. I hope y'all took it all in. But before I let you go, I wanted to talk about the next priority from the Biden administration, and that's the infrastructure package. In case you missed it, on the heels of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, the Biden administration recently announced that it is seeking to pass a recovery package that would include significant investments in our physical infrastructure, things like roads, ports, bridges, water systems, and broadband, but also investments in our human infrastructure. Things like community colleges, schools, daycare centers, and affordable housing. While I fully support all of these things, I hope that as the administration and Congress fleshes out what this investment will ultimately look like, we're developing this recovery plan with Black Americans front of mind. Even as the economy recovers, we're already seeing that Black Americans aren't fully a part of this recovery. So as we build back better, every dollar attached to a contract to build anything must have strong hiring requirements that include local hiring and minority hiring targets, and minority contractor participation goals. I know that this is already law, but what's often missing is the oversight and contract compliance to ensure that contractors actually follow through on the hiring and subcontracting with Black-owned firms. We can't talk about the racial wealth gap, spend trillions of dollars, and not use this as an opportunity to be intentional about putting folks, particularly Black folks, back to work and building back better Black businesses. And that's that on that. We'll see you again on Thursday. Hope you all enjoyed the show.